Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good afternoon. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Dean Mitchell Winnick, and I am joined today by my guest co-host, but not someone who's a stranger to you, someone who's been a frequent co-host with us on Wagner and Winnick on the Law, constitutional law professor and attorney Michael Cohen. Michael, welcome to the show today. Hey, Mitch. It's great to uh, be back in studio with you after your sojourn to Italy, and uh, we have a a wonderful guest today for our International Crossroads segment. Um, um, and uh, let me get right to our introduction. Go right ahead. Um, with us today is uh, Ross Veltman, who is um, the executive director of the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel, um, uh, which is a, an association for chief legal officers. Um, uh, of companies, um, both public and private, all types of business organizations, really, um, right here in our own backyard in California in the Bay Area, um, uh, and particularly uh, Silicon Valley across the hill from where we're broadcasting today. Um, the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel actually puts on, I think, the country's largest conference for... Um, continuing learning uh, education for chief legal officers. It is one of the um, unique associations in the nation, Ross, devoted to chief legal officers and kind of comes out of your own background as an in-house um, counsel um, uh, and somebody who now with Ivy Associates uh, consults uh, to in-house law departments, uh, among many other things. Welcome to our show and thank you for being here. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, one place to start with this topic um, that we've just introduced by way of your own background and bio, Ross, the the topic of it, in-house counsel. What is that? You know, like when I went to law school, I watched a lot of Perry Mason. It was in black and white. And the only thing I wanted to do was to mix it up in court in the criminal justice system. You're going to tell me the, you didn't see a television show about in-house counsel? Not one. <laughs> and I uh, had no idea that uh, there, there was such thing um, until many years later, for, frankly, when I actually started uh, in private practice, Mitch, and realized that not only are there things like in-house counsel, but they hire you and fire you and do all kinds of other things. Well, and as my father-in-law... My late father-in-law would say, they're really big jobs, too. They are massive <laughs> jobs. And, and what better person to tell us a little bit about it? Ross, what is this role of, of in-house counsel? Keeping in mind that you know not all of, all of our listeners are, are lawyers. In fact, um, most, most are, are not. not. That's correct. Yeah, well, I think that most people would be familiar with lawyers from the media that they'd either be in criminal law, such as a prosecutor, or they would be in private practice, probably with a law firm. Uh, and, and that's still mostly the case. Um, in some industries, for some reasons, uh, over time, there have been a lot of attorneys who have been hired 
in-house, meaning that they're actually employees of the company, usually a corporation, but not necessarily. And uh, they'll usually start by hiring one attorney who then becomes usually called the general counsel. If the company keeps growing and has more legal needs, then that person will generally hire staff attorneys and there'll be an entire legal department. That has um, become more typical of Silicon Valley companies because they face some unusual issues of regulation and uh, needs for legal expertise and the kind of product or services that they provide. But really before, the kinds of companies that had in-house counsel were highly regulated, so you tended to see them. You saw legal departments in public utilities, large financial institutions uh, in the Bay Area. When I started, most of the in-house attorneys worked either for PacBell or PG&E or one of the banks headquartered in San Francisco. And now it's hard to imagine a company without some le legal counsel in-house, in wouldn't, you, wouldn't you think? It's true, and, and within, well, here, when you're so close to tech and life sciences, you start to get sub-segments, sub-sectors, even in, within technology. Some sectors will, uh, to use a kind of a slang term, lawyer up at an earlier stage of their development than other sectors. So, for example, the biotech sector tends to hire attorneys at an earlier stage than a semiconductor chip-making company or some other companies. Why? Why is that? I was going to say, in, in some cases in, in tech, isn't it common that you will frequently find lawyers as some of the founding partners, that that's a common group, that the scientists and the founders, and then somewhere in that early mix, they've got a lawyer? Uh, nowadays, with this internet infrastructure type companies, so really sort of beginning with Netscape, uh, a famous name for a company that is no more in the valley, um, you would have companies where there were attorneys at a very early stage. They don't tend to be in the classic team that's put together by a venture capital firm, though. There are many attorneys now who work in venture capital, but they've segued into that role as, as an investment professional. Uh, what would often happen would be that a team is put together of the, uh, well, what you you would typically have a chief executive officer, probably in a tech industry, would be somebody who either comes from a uh, an inventor or product development background or maybe a sales background. Uh, they would have a, a usually a, maybe a vice president of sales if the if the CEO didn't come from that background in the team. Uh, they'll generally have a chief financial officer. Uh, but beyond that, they they would often not include a general counsel who's not a statutory officer in California or most states. And it's uh, it's an interesting situation that arises for companies because in the Valley, tech companies, if they're successful, almost always do bring that person in. And that person really usually becomes on a peer-to-peer relationship with these other senior executives. Yeah, so, so Michael, wait, wait, I know you're going to go back into stuff, but I got to ask something right It's top of my, my mind here. So who is the client? So you just you just said it. That is always one of the things that fascinate me about general counsel. So you've just said your words were kind of a senior member of those top folks, but who is that general counsel's client? Well, a really good general counsel, if you go to any of the conference presentations on legal ethics, which are required, will be constantly asking that question, <laughs> trying to remind himself. Oh, wait a minute. You're going to give us, it depends? <laughs> uh, well, no. I'll give you the short answer. They just need to keep reminding themselves. Uh, the client is the company. The problem is that 
companies, you know, uh, stock certificates, they're, they don't speak. They don't have human form. So then you go to how does the company express itself, and that's typically yeah. the board of directors. But and that's that can, at a very high level. And that gets to be a very complicated question in public companies versus private companies. Those roles are so different of directors and shareholders between the two, um, wouldn't you say, Ross? Yes, and often you get uh, people who have multiple hats because yeah. you will have people who are their shareholders and they may be an independent or an outside director on another company, um, and those both of those companies have relationships with each other. They sell to each other. They buy from each other. That's one of the issues that was just discussed among some of the counsel in my group. You mentioned something about biotech getting lawyered up, I think was the term you used, um, earlier than some other companies. And I'd like to go back to that because that's what's happening right, right now in, in Silicon Valley. I mean, biotech is... I wouldn't say new to the Valley, but it has become a massive engine of commerce to Silicon Valley in this round of, of, of economy, uh, you know, formerly much farther south in our state, San Diego and some other places more traditionally. Um, not, not anymore. You know, you know, Silicon Valley is, is the hub, some might say, of, of biotech in this country right now. Um, why is it that, that you'd be lawyered up in this particular industry earlier than some of the industries you have seen over the many years? Uh, I can't give you a, a, a completely confident answer to that, uh, but there's probably a couple factors that are feeding into it. Um, one is that, um, Biotech companies tend to groom themselves. They they have an exit plan usually that includes being acquired. Uh, in the Bay Area, in the biotech industry, you will tend to see lots of research and development companies. And uh, that should be contrasted with, for example, on the East Coast, um, the corridor around Princeton, New Jersey, or Route 128, especially around Princeton, where you have very large pharmaceutical companies. And the pharma companies that have worldwide marketing forces and sell to uh, national health services and medical practices all over um, can field a sales force that's really required for the products that small companies don't. And so they're preparing themselves. They need to have that legal work taken care of in case they're acquired. Yeah, it's, that's fascinating, right? Like, cause it's, it's such a perfect um, area um, to, and we'll come back to it after the break, but, but biotech is venture risk, right? I, and I, I come, come and back to gonna, that a little bit. We will come back to that after the break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our guest is Ross Veltman, the executive director for the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel. Don't go away. Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do so 
some working during that time and some savings. So I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them. And Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy LaRevere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Dean Mitchell Winnick of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. I'm here today with my co-host, Michael Cohen, constitutional law professor and international law attorney. And we're delighted to have Ross Veltman. 
the executive director for the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel. So, Michael, you and Ross were just about to talk about a little more about what does an in-house counsel do? Yeah, we, you know, um, so one thing we talked about in the biotech sector is, is lawyering up probably for intellectual property protection and acquisition. You know, at the end of the day, that's, that's the asset, right? Um, but more generally, you know, some of these, you, you've seen so much over your history in the Valley and your history with companies, Ross. Um, I thought it, it would be wonderful if you might share a little bit about uh, your vision over time of how the in-house role has uh, kind of developed and what it what the chief legal officer might be at a large tech company. What, do you, what might that chief legal officer face on his desk today? Okay. Um, it definitely has changed over the years, and it's also uh, changes depending on the scale of the organization and to some extent, you know, what subsector of business it's in, as we were talking about before the break. Um, when we're giving the continuing education for the people who come to the conference, they're, of course, trying to stay on top of new developments. And originally, almost 30 years ago, there was basically a single uh, track. It was uh, meeting at one of the company members' uh, facility. We had lunch at the picnic tables outside. It was a very low-key event, um, also much smaller. What those general counsel did was a little bit of everything. So over the years, what's happened is as their companies have grown, they have added staff. Sometimes they've acquired responsibilities for non-attorneys. Could be contract management. Could be human resource department. Compliance. Definitely compliance. Now you have uh, you can see new titles coming in every year. And in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of privacy-related titles come in as well as general compliance officer titles. Um, so that's been a wave as well. Um, as they get bigger in scope and need to have more people handling these areas, those people will specialize. So you'll have within the legal department specialists in the main areas. The, the, the biggest for most companies, or the one that they start with, I should say, would be um, if they're a corporation, if they're venture-funded, if they're goal, uh, at least one of their goals would be, one of their paths would be to go to go public, uh, for example, would be they, they have to have corporate compliance. If they do go public, they certainly have a lot of corporate securities compliance to do. And so that's compliance from the uh, securities issue, but there's also compliance with environmental laws, international laws, other regulatory laws, I assume, depending on what their product or service is. Exactly. Uh, if they're in wireless communication, there's all sorts of uh, FCC, communication regulations. Right. Uh, there are now some startups, some of our members are involved with, um, it's real estate transactions, it's basically crowdfunding of uh, residential real estate and for commercial uh, leasing. Well, that's, just, that's not nerve-wracking at all, considering all the, the great luck we've had regulating real estate transactions and finance in this country, right, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> At any given day, Mitch. So, Ross, you mentioned that the first conference was on picnic tables at a, is a, at a member's um, uh, headquarters, wherever that may have been, uh, if you could call it even that at the time. How big is the conference today? Well, today we have about uh, 200 companies, all tech and life science, whose chief legal officers and their teams, which is why it's called the All Hands Meeting, uh, meet each year. It's at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Uh, this year will be in uh, November, on the 16th and the 17th. Um, 
It's a meeting that was engineered not for the just the general counsel themselves or the chief legal officers, but for them to bring their whole team. And it's sort of like a very large multi-company off-site for continuing professional education for the legal industry. You know, one of the things that strikes me as you describe this expanding role, you didn't really talk about management, but it sounds like a general counsel's role now has become more of a manager of a mid-sized law firm. They may be captured within a company, but what you're exp explaining are a lot of lawyers. This is an entire law firm, isn't it? They're going to have paralegals, they've got secretaries. I mean, this is a law firm within a corporate institution, isn't it? Some certainly are. Uh, companies the size of Hewlett-Packard or Google, they have the equivalent of law firms that are larger than many other firms elsewhere in the U.S. Now, that was always the case also with the banks and with the larger oil companies that had also regulatory issues. But it was very unusual for most of the tech companies until they started to grow very fast during the 70s and the 80s. Uh, what'll happen to the general counsel as the company grows? Well, depends on his or her background when they're brought in. And there's a variety of reasons that the company might bring in their first attorney. Now, traditionally, in the early days of the Valley, uh, often the first attorney for a tech company would be a patent attorney. That makes sense, yeah, particularly and given they're, the, they're, the nature of their products and services. Trying to, trying to get uh, patents uh, uh, approved for their companies uh, based on the technologies that they're developing. Um, and that's a very specialized process. You have to be admitted to a special patent bar. It's not something that every attorney can do. That, that phase of, of patent application and processing and, uh, for patents. Um, what would then happen is as the company grew, if it went public, it now had a need for securities regulation compliance and corporate information. Well, sometimes that's really not the specialty of someone who starts as a patent attorney. And there was a time where you saw a lot of companies, their general counsel was a patent attorney, and there would be a transition over. And the new general counsel might come from a corporate background, uh, could come from other areas too. In the association, we have some that are from human resources background. Uh, we have some uh, notable cases in the Valley where companies like Intel have transitioned in their various general counsels to somebody with an antitrust background. Well, Michael, I would assume that your work with Shepard Mullen is an international lawyer. A lot of these in-house counsels dealing with international law. Isn't that your relationship with many of these companies? Yeah, they, they all, uh, and they, they divide that uh, many different ways that, that Ross can talk about. But, you know, it's, it's funny to, to hear you talk about the, the patent lawyer as a general counsel that transitioned. I, I recall my own clients in Silicon Valley over the many years, Ross, that I've been so privileged to represent and um, I've dealt with general counsels who surfed with me at Ocean Beach in the morning and at 6.30 a.m. and grabbed McDonald's on their, on their way down to Sunnyvale. That is not uh, a product placement, to, to, by the to, way. To, to, <laughs> uh, to see the, that company then, you know, hire somebody from Skadden Arps, one of the, you know, New York, Wall Street, global firms and, and corporate um, as, as the company has changed through the cycle that, that you mentioned. And it... Uh, uh, it, it, it really is kind of a special um, experience to watch and, and be with uh, clients as they grow like that. And you've done that through the association for years. You have sort of caught all these different technology waves and other waves of industry here in the Valley. Yeah, there are people who have been through a number of companies. Um, their companies have generally, sometimes they've gone public, they've left them, sometimes they've been sold. 
and they've been in a lot of different sectors, the members. They have a lot of stories to tell, and they've had a lot of different responsibilities over the years that have changed. Let's talk about a little of those responsibilities when we come back. That's exactly right. Don't go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have as our guest today Ross Veltman, the Executive Director for the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel. We'll be right back after this short break. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. 
At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back. This is Mitch Winnick, Dean of Monterey College Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law, and you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Now, you may notice that only the Winnick is here today. I guess I didn't say that up front. I've got Michael Cohen serving as my co-host today. Uh, Stephen Wagner had other obligations. It's the magic of live radio. 52 weekends a year. There's some weekends we just have other things we have to do. But we are delighted to have Michael Cohen, a constitutional law professor and international lawyer with us today particularly with our guest, Ross Veltman, who's the executive director for the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel. And, and Ross, let, let me start off this segment by asking you, we've talked a lot about what American general counsels do or in-house counsels or chief legal officers, as we've, we've heard you guys reference them. But outside of the United States, is that a similar role? If I were to deal with a, a corporation that is based in Europe or somewhere else in the in the world, would I? Ex would you have peers? Or will there be a chief legal officer or an in-house counsel in those type of companies? Um, there, there are general counsel, chief legal officers in other countries, more so Western European ones that share the U.S. Um, legal system. And you would, however, not see as many. Um, it's, I think, largely starting as an American. Uh, position um, as far as growing a, a larger department if you're talking about within general businesses not in highly regulated businesses um, in those other countries though the general counsel may have different responsibilities to some extent they may have um, a different relationship with the other uh, corporate officers um, because of the, there are some slight differences between the laws in other countries 
laws about the role of attorneys and, and how they progress professionally and uh, uh, powers that they have, for example. Well, one of the things, and, and Michael and I just talked just briefly about, chatted just briefly about this, but there's this idea of privilege, which is your lawyer, and, and we've talked about this on the show in other contexts. If, if you are my lawyer, I can tell you anything. And generally in the United States, unless I know that you're about to commit a crime, and particularly a crime that will cause, I think, was it, grievous bodily injury? That's the only time you can break the relationship, and then you can you can tell the the authorities that your client's about to enter into a crime. But other than that, it's sacrosanct, right? So I, I guess I heard you say earlier in the United States that would be the case. The corporation is your client, and that privilege, that bubble around what you learn is there. Well, there's two things, really, Mitch. You know, one, one's a duty of confidentiality. Right. That, that, what you just mentioned is, uh, goes to the lawyer's ethical duty. Right. Privilege is an evidentiary issue. Okay. Simply is something that can or cannot be you know, admitted in court, a client holds it, right? Um, and the lawyer can't give it up because it's the client's it's to the, give. It's the client's to right. give. Um, and in the United States, the, we, we, we have very strict uh, views of that privilege. In Europe, not so. Ross, tell me a little bit about that. You must have experienced this a, a little bit in your in-house um, agenda because this kind of rocked the world of, uh, a little bit ago. <laughs> well, there's a, a lot of discussion. It still is ongoing. Um, the view of the in-house attorneys in um, Europe is sometimes not the same as the view of in-house attorneys in the United States. And remember, in the United States, you, you have both a federal uh, level of the, uh, of, of the legal system, and you also have 50 different states, each which have their own legal systems, and they set out the rules of conduct for the attorneys that are licensed in, yeah. in each of their states. Like, likewise, the EU has an EU exactly. level of, of uh, standards, and then the nation members, and, and then Britain does whatever it wants nowadays. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have, you have model codes, so there's still a lot of similarity among all these different players in the layers, but the concern that came up uh, in recent years for a lot of in-house attorneys in Europe was uh, some decisions of European bodies saying that they felt because an in-house attorney was an employee of the company and that therefore the board of directors or the chief executive officer could set that person's salary, could hire or fire that person because they are an employee. They did not have the same relationship to the company as a client and were subject perhaps to some other pressures that someone who's a traditional attorney in private practice, which most attorneys are, um, have, have, do not have or have a different relationship. Yeah, that's a fascinating way to put it because, uh, yeah, they, they basically said their, their motivations were, were different and therefore their communications would be different. Um, well, that would be a challenge for you, particularly if you are a multinational corporation, wouldn't it? Yeah. So if you've got, I assume you know, every one of those lawyers are employees of the company, but you've got, let's say you've got your, your main corporation in Palo Alto, but you've got locations in China or Taiwan or Japan and other places like that. And let's say you have lawyers on site there. I guess that's... I assume that may be something that's come up in your CLE training programs. Uh, we've, we've had, well, again, the, the, the analog to all of us that keeps changing over the years is the conference that we have. And it's, and it's not just members of the association. It includes other invited technology companies. But uh, they have grown internationally. And as they have, they've run into these differences. We have some uh, member companies 
that are not headquartered in the United States that are publicly traded. Um, we have a number of the Fujitsu companies. A lot of those companies, uh, especially from Asia, but also Europe, have, have acquired companies or established their own tech subsidiaries in the United States. So there's both overseas companies, their headquarters are overseas, and U.S. operations are within their network of business. And there are a lot of companies headquartered in Silicon Valley and elsewhere in the U.S., and they have overseas networks of subsidiaries, where they have subsidiary companies throughout Asia and Europe and other parts of the world. The laws can be different in those different jurisdictions, and a general counsel is faced with kind of being a, a ringmaster. Uh, and that's sort of a natural uh, evolution of the role as well, because originally they're, they may be all by the, him or herself, and managing the legal function for the company, managing outside counsel, because they're still going to be using attorneys at law firms to do their work. Um, then as things go on, there's a variety of different specialized areas. Typically, the first for a tech company that you'll have sort of exploding will be commercial transactions. And in the intellectual property-related businesses, um, there is a high legal content because... Your patents are in the, uh, often spoken of. A patent is, is is simply a license to sue. Um, they aren't self enforcing. I thought you were going to say license to steal. So you <laughs> threw me off the track there for a moment. <laughs> license to prevent stealing. I think. Uh, so so they need to manage the portfolio, but but the product is in and of itself a legal creation. It's it's not a physical embodiment, and uh, although you may turn it into something like that. And it's important, therefore, for them to really be on top of changing IP law, which has only developed in the last 40 or so years in Silicon Valley because of the need. It's, it's been a very sort of Darwinian process um, to, try to try to see these different issues coming up and how contracts all now need to be changed. And it's, so, it's got to be so fascinating, Ross, for the companies to have to deal in a multinational world where intellectual property... Um, frankly, is a social welfare value that is not followed or even recognized in what I would call most of the world. Um, China does not have intellectual property. It does not recognize that concept. It's built into our constitution. Um, that doesn't mean that they share that value, and it doesn't mean that it's better, better or worse. They also happen to have you know, an equal weight and economy that our companies you know like to do business in, and there's just... Um, uh, so just taking that one thing of intellectual property and seeing how that can grow multinationally um, is, has got to be uh, an amazing um, thing because your conference, to get back to that wonderful um, algorithm, has ebbed and flowed with the composition of your membership over the years. Yes. So what, what does it look like now? What does the conference look like by way of substantive planning? The, 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 what kind of tracks what kind of substance it, it, you know comes into the conference and in, in today's reflections well last year it, it expanded it went to two full days and on each day there are four tracks the important thing i think that reflects silicon valley is that people don't only they, they're not forced to attend one track most people will combine things smaller companies that are more generalized will jump around more specialists uh, specialized companies will tend to stay in one track intellectual property was one of the early tracks, corporate and regulatory affairs. There are a lot of specialists in that area. These reflects the larger departments where you tend to have attorneys specializing at the staff level. That would cover antitrust issues, for example, and other kinds of uh, white-collar 
issues. Um, human resources is another area where any company, as it grows, as their commercial agreements need uh, needs for legal attention grow, they'll also have needs as they expand their workforce uh, for human resource issues and legal support. When we come back, back after this break, I think you actually mentioned earlier that Brexit was on your agenda recently. We're going to have to ask how that comes into play for general counsel as well. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our guest is Executive Director for the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel, Ross Veltman. Don't go away. We will be right back. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go. So it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at FTC.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. 
Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to constitutioncenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick in the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, and today we're talking about the interesting role of in-house counsel and chief legal officers for businesses and corporations. And, and Michael, so you were about to ask a little more about the all-hands meeting and how the, the change in the role of not just in-house counsel, but the process, the, the, just the topics they're dealing with over these years. Yeah, you know, it's, what's fascinating about having Ross as a guest is he's got this span of time where he has experienced the growth of these in-house law departments. And, Ross, you mentioned when we first started talking that um, uh, originally lawyers were employed by companies when they were in regulated industries, when there was a regulatory oversight. And I kind of feel, and this is my own view, that inherent in the story and the growth um, of the lawyer's role over this time period that you've experienced in this magical economy, you, you know, the, the technology revolution to have experienced all of this here in, in Silicon Valley is to also experience a little bit of the regulation that you talked about early on exploding all over the world. Um, as our economies have gotten global, and, and interdependent, um, as the world has gotten smaller, government has not shrunk. Go- government has grown and grown and grown and grown. So, so you know, do you see a little bit of that in here? This regulatory, uh, the regulatory need being driven sort of more globally and uh, more exponentially than, than previously? Yeah, we are all in regulated, regulated industries now. Yeah. And uh, you can see it some more than others. But, um, you know, as you've seen, the different, our different tracks expand. Um, the human resources track 
was created because companies were needing to bring more legal firepower in-house to deal with the fact, starting in California, but then elsewhere in the United States, that at-will employees now started to have uh, uh, issues and there was litigation about uh, um, uh, unlawful terminations, uh, even though they didn't have a union contract or any contract with the company. So you get another track. Um, as patent expanded, of course, there's a track for that. Um, we had a separate... Uh, we attempted to address global issues, international issues, for all the companies at one point by having some in each of these areas because obviously there's international labor forces that a multinational company has. Uh, there's international IP protection. There's international corporate issues. Um, and that got to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, we ran out of space and time at the convention center, and there's a lot, there's a lot of competition for that. Uh, what we ended up doing was saying, okay, we need to break off something, and we had a smaller spring conference where we took the global issues, and we had an all-hands meeting international. Um, that was a, a few tracks that would really focus on the IP international, the, H, the, the human resources international issues, and the commercial kind of issues as well as regulatory. And my guess is if you did it in the spring, Brexit wasn't yet on the agenda then. We're always prepared <laughs> for, for late-breaking developments, and you never be sure what's going to happen. But this year, we had on calendar to speak with some of the speakers who were coming from a, a, a UK-based law firm um, to say, listen, if the vote on, I think it was June 27th, goes towards Brexit, are, are you prepared to speak on that? Because people are going to want to know about it. And, and, and we now have a segment on there. And for those that don't follow the international law, that Brexit is the exit of the UK from the EU. So. Yes, which, which will only, it will take a long time to implement, but one of the purposes of having somebody who's an attorney with a company is it, it, it's, it's to have them both always very familiar with your business, so that there, you don't have to bring an outside counsel up to speed on a new product or a new market that you're entering, but also because they're ready, that they're prepared in a sort of defensive stance, that they, they kind of are watching for the red flag issues. I'd say if you talk to an experienced in-house general counsel, kind of folks who are members of our organization, especially the ones that have been in multiple companies, they'll say, hey, there's always a lot of possible crises that are kind of coming at you. And the only thing you know for sure is that 9 out of 10 of those won't happen. The problem is you don't know which one of the 10 is going to be the one that's going to happen. So you have to keep your eyes open, and, and that's part of what the conference is about. Well, I do have to say that this whole conversation has pointed out, Michael, just as you were discussing, that difference between the role of in-house counsel. I have to say, back when I got out of law school in the dark ages, in-house counsel was kind of the boring track. You know, if you wanted excitement, you wanted to be a litigator, you wanted to go out into the into hang your own shingle. And yet the way you're explaining it is the cutting edge law of what's going on right now is actually with in-house corporate counsel, right? Now. It's fascinating. The the you know, the chief legal officer that that Ross describes today is part of the C-suite to the extent that they were not the executive officer before, they now have a direct reporting function to a board and they even have direct reporting functions to the government for certain things <laughs> if a board doesn't act. It's an it's an enormous it's an enormous role. Although I do wonder why Google's in-house law department is so large because it seems to me that um, 
the folks at Google would just Google it. <laughs> why, uh, why ask a lawyer? Okay, just gonna Google leave it. it. We're going to leave it on that. Ross, tell us how, tell individuals how to find out more about the Silicon Valley Association General Counsel and your all hands uh, sessions. Well, if they don't have a pen, they could just remember that if you go to Wikipedia and you look up General Counsel, there'll be an entry about the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel. And eventually you'll get a link also as well to the annual conference. And that happens to be svagc.org slash allhands. That's great. Michael, this is going to be another great session of International Crossroads. Ha have you decided what we're going to do next yet? Absolutely. I know I'm putting... Oh, you have? Well, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to... We have to address the dispute around the South China Sea. That is not going away. And it's going to... Um, actually, I think, Mitch, going to be one of these issues that, that uh, where, where we have a country um, that, that is non-compliant with the first ever decision from world courts. Um, and it's going to be a big one. <laughs> uh, as was this. Ross, thank you so much for, for joining us. I think the organization is absolutely fascinating, but just as fascinating to me as, as your life and history with this group of clients over these decades. Just amazing stuff. Uh, it's well, been a real pleasure. Thank you, Ross Veltman, Executive Director for the Silicon Valley Association of General Counsel. Thank you, Michael Cohen, our constitutional law professor. A reminder that you can hear previous shows at wagnerandwinnick.com and also hear a replay of this on Voice America.com. As we remind you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer.